This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On Media Watch this week, we ask the boss of our biggest publisher of news, Stuff, why they don't want chat GPT crawling all over it. They're training increasingly on AI-generated dross, and the whole model probably starts to eat itself and, and just become a sea of slime. So, you know, nobody wants that to happen. But is keeping AI at arm's length really going to work for them and the rest of the media? Also, as the election campaign rumbles on, there's been controversy over one political party wanting to start a new university medical school, while one paper seems to have made up an entire university. But first, last Tuesday was a big day in the campaign as the pre-election fiscal update, PREFU for short, revealed the state of the nation's finances and Treasury's projections for the foreseeable future. Now, this is supposed to drop some unspun numbers into the election debate, but our media still seized on support-seeking politicians airing irreconcilable versions of the state of our economy. Well, one set of numbers and two political parties trying to tell the public what they mean after the government opened its books for pre-election scrutiny. This morning reports Ingrid Hipkiss on Wednesday, the morning after Treasury's big reveal of the state of the nation's finances and their best guess of what they'll be like for the foreseeable future. But as Ingrid said there, the two big election players had diverging takes on what those same numbers actually meant. Labour says the pre-election economic and fiscal update shows there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it is winning the battle against inflation. But National is blaming the government's spending for a delayed return to surplus and insists it can still pay for its proposed tax cuts. And it's no surprise that one of the biggest parties contesting the election would highlight only the light at the end of the tunnel, while the other one could only see another train. But the expectations that those numbers were going to be bad had clearly been seeded in the media. Ingrid Hipkiss reckoned so when she spoke to the Prime Minister 24 hours earlier, the morning before the big reveal. I mean, widely expected to be grim reading, you know, debt, the deficit bigger than expected, a surplus further away than expected. Uh, I mean, this is going to be more grim reading and more fuel for national, isn't it? Oh, we're certainly facing a very challenging economic environment at the moment, and the government's books will show that. And Ingrid Hipkiss was far from the only one in our media convinced the books would be bleak, as the Prime Minister himself went on to point out. Yeah, I know that a lot of the commentators have written their, their commentaries already and are just waiting for the numbers to come out to prefit an opinion that they have already formed. Um, but I'd encourage them to wait and see what the pre-election fiscal update shows before they, uh, before they do that. Now also that morning, under the prematurely present tense headline, Prefu, how bad is it? The New Zealand Herald's deputy political editor Thomas Coughlin said that weak-looking books were not only bad for the incumbent government because National had promised to base its alternative government-in-waiting budget on those Prefu forecasts. The national financial conditions were concealed from governments-in-waiting in the past, who often got a shock when they discovered the awful truth only after they won an election. And on the spin-off politics podcast Gone by Lunchtime, journalist Bernard Hickey explained that's why we have Prefus now. Essentially, the opposition and the public had to just take it on face value that the government was being honest hmm. about what was happening in the, in the budgets. And because in... Uh, both 1984 and 1990, there was such turmoil and economic crisis happening, partly caused by the election and and just by events, dear boy, then uh, uh, when the new government came in, they were yeah. shocked. And so was the public. And The incoming governments in both those years came in and went, what 
Da F. Yeah. Exactly. And that makes those neutral numbers, which politicians and the public alike only get every three years, a bit of treasure from our Treasury. The spin-off's Toby Manhire described it this way on that special Gone By Lunchtime podcast, catchily titled, Everybody Was Pre-Foo Fighting. Right, as far as it gets at an election campaign, this is a, a spin-free set of documents. Wow, it's like a new thing to spin, um, but, at least, <laughs> but at least it's fresh spin. Yeah. And spin them they did after Tuesday. But while the accounts were not as dire as many in the media and the political opposition had predicted, Bernard Hickey argued that other looming liabilities, like infrastructure deficits and the looming multi-billion dollar bill for failing to meet emissions targets in future, were not factored in, and these would give a much truer picture of our actual economics. But others pointed out that the economy is, once again, being propped up by a short-term injection of high immigration, which has far exceeded Treasury's earlier expectations. But in the here and now, the prefu revealed that the government will need an extra $9 billion next year and will have less to spend than in the budget 2023 for the foreseeable future. RNZ's political reporter Giles Dexter summed it up like this. There's no projection of a recession and inflation is forecast to drop back below the magic 3% marker by December 2024. But there is, of course, nothing magical about that marker of 3% inflation. It's just the top of the 1% to 3% target range that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has always been asked to hit. But the key word there from Giles Dexter was projection. In other words, these were the best guesses of economists. And Stuff noted that migration was forecast to peak at close to 100,000 in the year ending September, and that's about 33,000 more people than Treasury forecast only in May. Let's hope other relevant predictions aren't also out by as much as a third. But political parties will now recalculate fiscal policies for the election campaign. Though, as we heard, National insists no U-turn will come on its announced tax cuts because, they say, that plan is cost-neutral thanks to revenue generated by other tax tweaks, notably the tax, or is it a fee, for big-ticket house sales to foreigners. And after independent economist Michael Riddell said neither Labour nor National's current economic policies are tenable and wouldn't reduce the nation's deficit, on Morning Report, Corin Dan put that to Christopher Luxon. He's very critical of Labour. He is very critical of you too. He says the back pocket boost package was advertised as only fiscally neutral. It is clear that the foreign buyer tax numbers do not add up. For now, the package adds to an already very large deficit. What a load of rubbish. Uh, the bottom line is that our tax plan is fully funded. It comes through revenue raising, as you identified, but also reprioritisation of savings. Now, on Wednesday night, TVNZ's deputy political editor, Mikey Sherman, told One News viewers this. One News is expecting another bombshell to hit Nationals' thrown by a doorstep tomorrow as a group of economic experts are set to release a paper casting serious doubt over the policy. And that chorus of criticism from a supergroup of economists led RNZ's news the next day. Economists across the political spectrum have examined Nationals' proposed foreign home buyers' tax and identified an enormous revenue shortfall. National has claimed the tax will raise $740 million a year, but has thus far refused to release its workings. And while he was at it, Michael Riddell even gave RNZ some media management advice for National. It's got so much attention that if their numbers are robust, you'd think you'd put it out there, get a day's attention, and the issue would move on. You know, no one can force them to, but if they don't, then voters and independent analysts will reach their own conclusions. Well, he wasn't wrong. That's exactly what they did do. 
But back at the Gone By Lunchtime podcast, Bernard Hickey wondered whether the much-mooted independent costings unit to run the rule over policies at election time might help with this sort of thing. Other countries have them, he said, and they even work with political parties to tweak their policies to make them a bit more practical. And that's what I think an independent costings unit would force the parties to do, to actually uh, say what the assumption are, assumptions are they're going to plug into the machine. Tell us what your population growth assumption is. Tell us what your uh, investment growth uh, assumption will be. And by the way, when we plug in the tax settings you've given us, that comes up with a very low investment number or a very low productivity growth number. And that would, you know, be quite good for people who want to call bullshit on various parties of all kinds. Now that sounds like a great idea that could lift the policy offerings and sidestep the sort of squirming we've seen in the media this past week. But will politicians ever greenlight a mechanism which would allow people, including journalists, to, as Bernard Hickey put it, call bullshit on their populist plans to pick up more public popularity at election time? Few politicians, it seems, would vote for that. Eleven years ago, the Auckland University of Technology hosted a two-day conference called Project Revolution, all about the growing impact of online digital technology and social media platforms, and it attracted some pretty heavy hitters in the business from Silicon Valley, among them Michael Jones. Now, he was Google's chief technology advocate at the time, a role that had been created especially for him after he successfully started Google Maps. But back in 2012, Google itself was only eight years old, but the news media were already worried just how many people were finding their news through Google. Critics complained that online search outfits had created what they called a walled garden, meaning an information ecosystem over which Google would end up with ultimate control and it would make the most money out of the information of others that it had indexed so well. But back then, Michael Jones told me that all Google was doing was helping people find the publisher's own news. It's not that we're stealing your content somehow that... You're losing money because of that. It's that, it's that. The newspaper owns its content because they pays the journalist to gather the content. There's a great value in that. We want to just be a neutral, uh, almost like a librarian, helping you find the right book, but, but not, not having written in the book. You know, it, it, when you use Google, I cannot imagine us saying, get the news from Google and we'll tell you what the news was. It, it feels very awkward. Well, Michael Jones died two years ago, shortly before the launch of the first generative AI applications, which do create a version of the news that people ask for. And among them is Google's own service called Bard. And just last month, the New York Times reported that Google was testing an AI tool which writes original news articles as well. The product, known as Genesis, uses AI technology to take in details of current events. And Google reportedly pitched this to several US news outlets as an aid for journalists rather than a replacement for them. Now, earlier this month, at another event at the Auckland University of Technology, the AI Plus Communication Symposium, a former journalist-turned-PR strategist, Catherine Arrow, warned that that walled garden was now something much more restricted. And essentially, where Google and the other search engines created a walled garden of knowledge that we're allowed into, and we can pick and choose what they've decided are the best blooms, as we get into search generative experience... We find ourselves not allowed in the garden and only show the flowers that they decide that we can look at. And there's a real danger there. AI apps like Google's Bard and Microsoft's Bing Chat and OpenAI's ChatGPT respond to simple prompts from people using information that the apps have scraped from the internet, including news produced at great expense in the first place by its publishers. 
but those AI apps are not always that good at it. And as if to prove that point at the AUT's communication symposium last week, Senior Lecturer in Journalism and Media Dr Maria Mililati said that they're not that much good yet at sourcing the news from New Zealand. There were no links to Radio New Zealand. There were no links to the TV and said Newsroom, no links. The spin-off, the Otaku Daily Times, the Guardian, which has a New Zealand section. But some makers of news are not at all unhappy that their news is not being found by the AI apps which scrape the web for data. CNN, Reuters, The Washington Post, Bloomberg, The New York Times and The Guardian are all preventing the GPT maker OpenAI from harvesting their content and other AI apps too, especially those that punch through their online paywalls. And this week, our biggest publisher of news, Stuff, joined them. But is keeping those generative AI apps at arm's length the right option? Those same AI tools can also be pretty handy for them, gathering and publishing the news and producing it digitally. Local subscriber service Business Desk, for example, already creates articles in seconds from basic info from the Stock Exchange, as publisher Matt Martell told the AI Plus Communications Symposium last week. Uh, We process NZX announcements into articles which used to take us a minimum of 30 minutes and now takes us under 30 seconds. Matt Martell told the gathering at the AUT that AI products had breached media copyright, including that of Business Desk, so obviously that their makers would have to come to an arrangement with news publishers in the end. But one of the world's very biggest, the news agency AP, has already done a deal with ChatGPT's maker OpenAI for the right to use AP's world news. And this week, Microsoft, the maker of the AI-powered Bing Chat, announced that it would effectively indemnify its corporate clients from the risk of copyright infringement when it's using their AI apps. Last month, Stuff's owner Sinead Boucher told an Asia-Pacific summit of the International News Media Association that generative AI could become degenerative AI for the media and society. And... We have to make sure that it generates value for journalism because if we don't get it right in this current wave of disruption, I think that wave is going to wash right over us. But how can that be done? And if it can't, what then? For any organisation that's, you know, invested heavily in creating content or knowledge, the big issue really is that these, you know, global tech companies have created models that can hoover up all of that and then create their own products out of it. Um, A sort of industrial mining on a vast digital scale. Search is about finding things on the internet and connecting people to something they're looking for. You know, there's a whole other debate about, you know, these companies have also made vast, you know, they've grown to unprecedented scale as businesses off the back of that content that they produce into their you know, their search results, and increasingly, even with search, uh, those um, results have come back in a format that deters the user from having to leave the Google environment to go off. What's really different here is, you know, it's not obviously just Google, there's OpenAI, there's all sorts of ones that are going to sprout up to train their technology on our content, other people's content, extract all of that knowledge and then just keep creating their own products out of that and that never completely cuts out the um, uh, creator of the content there is no licensing of it there's no um, permission given and mostly uh, uh, to do that and you know you, the, the 
heard the argument from some um, about, well, what's different? It's already out there on the internet. Somebody can search it and read it and do whatever they want. I think the real difference is this is on a, you know, the technology allows this to happen at an absolutely vast scale in the blink of an eye content. It's not just someone going and looking up a search result for their own interests and then commercial products being created out of that. Uh, So for example the Associated Press, the AP news agency I I think has done a deal or is in the process of doing one. Do you want fees for the right for these chatbots to crawl over your content? Do you want a license? you want to license it out to them? What what is it you want? Well I think um, you know firstly I would say this is incredible technology and there are going to be incredible things come out of it for all of us. There are also going to be some incredible risks that come out of that to our society, to every part of our lives, all of those things that are already... Well, that's an argument for that's, keeping them at arm's length, right? well, not actually one, dealing yeah, with them. If, well, you just want them to pay you? Or? No, there's, a, there's, t- there's two things there. Um, so yes, of course, you know, I think the news industry has learnt um, or needs to make sure it does learn the lessons of you know, the era of the rise of search, the rise of social media, where we didn't seek value for our content then, where we, in fact, in a lot of cases, actually adapted our whole business model to try and serve what the platforms needed. And what happened out of that is that all the value from that flowed to the platforms and not to the to the businesses and creators of that content. So now I think, yes, we don't want to repeat those mistakes. We're creating something that has high value to these companies. Of course we want it to be licensed or paid for in some way. However, the flip side of it is, if these models don't have access to this journalism, you know, high-quality academic content, whatever it is, then what are they training on? They're training on dross. They're training increasingly on AI-generated dross, and the whole model probably starts to eat itself and and just become a sea of slime. So, you know, nobody wants that to happen, um, but it's not our job to fix that for the tech companies. Um, we just need fair value for the content we've created that will help them um, fix their models. When it comes to dealing with tech companies, before Parliament there is a bill, a fair digital news bargaining bill, that is, I guess, in some sort of doubt because the government may change. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, Rod Sims, the Australian, the the man who made Google and Facebook pay, as he's labelled in Australia, um, he was instrumental in them getting those platforms to pay for recirculating news. Now he said since then this is already a bit out of date. We need a similar arrangement for AI companies who are similarly likely to profit from access to this information. Does that legislation need to be updated here in New Zealand to accommodate what you're saying, a fair deal for well, news media um, My read of the bill, uh, as it is now, is that that has been the intention of those behind it, is to try and future-proof it in the way that they word how, you know, they refer to how news content is used or made available for use. Mm. So I think that is the intention behind that bill. That's the sort of, I guess that will be in any submissions we're asked to make or any feedback we're asked to give that obviously is the big... Um, the the big thing looming for all kind of publishers and, and content creators in Australia where the legislation was successful at um, addressing the bargaining power imbalance, which is what the legislation here aims to do, um, to allow the you know news publishers to have a fair commercial negotiation with uh, those who are using their content. Um, those deals will all starting to be coming to an end now. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they are able to engage with um, the big tech companies in, you know, 
seeking licensing payment or payment for use of their content in this new world. Mm. And you referred to mistakes made in the past whereby um, news media companies perhaps didn't get um, fair value for what you see as the value of the journalism. Uh, You spoke to the International News Media Association and said, you know, we adapted our content to suit the platforms of these companies. We threw it all on their platforms, shaped the content we produced, changed the way headlines were done, and even the type of images to suit those platforms. Um, It wasn't necessarily, you told uh, the INMA, uh, to suit what our businesses needed or our audiences needed. This is all about where the audiences are, right? And if the audience start using AI apps for their information and their news and not going to websites, nothing you can do about that, is there? I disagree with that because, firstly... ourselves, so like stuff.co.nz is the largest website in New Zealand and um, we audiences are coming to us for their news but also just because these ginormous global giants are building businesses in this way does not mean we have to participate in that when we are creating the work that is actually, that's the work that's of value to audiences. So it's incumbent on us to create the right, not just the right kind of content, but the right kind of products and environments that mean they want to come to us for that. But we are under no obligation, for example, to throw everything onto the latest social media platform, um, thinking and so, something there might stick. You know, audiences might come back to us for that because what we've learned is that's not what happens. What happens is that they stay within those environments and all the value of that content flows to um, the platform. You also told the INMA we were complacent about the level of public trust in us, meaning news media in the past. Uh, We felt we had trust for so long we'd always have it, uh, and we were slow to react to the implications for us and society on the attacks from bad actors on that trust. Who who are the bad actors? Well, I think we've probably all seen in the last, you know, um, say seven or eight years, uh, maybe the last decade, those who seek to have power in one way or another have started by, you know, with campaigns where it's about deliberately undermining trust in existing institutions. Some of those are the government institutions, some of those are things like media. And, um, you know, personally, I think back to the Trump era as a really clear example of that but, in the media. But in New Zealand, stuff has a huge audience. So does, say, NZ Herald, our two big mainstream online news providers. Massive audience, yeah. way bigger than any of these so-called pink slime things or sites that try to look like news-like content, dailytelegraph.co.nz and so on. I mean, you're way, way bigger than them. Do you really need to worry about them undermining oh, trust in, not, in media? I'm not really worried about you know, these new AI pink slime sites. And for your audience, that's slight, that's news, that's sites that are can, um, created by AI to look like news content, but it's just, you know, crap. Some of it's malign, you know, some of it's intended to be malign, some of it's just trying to get some cheap advertising revenue by creating a whole lot of, you know, cheap, mm. cheap content. But for us, you know, n- news media, journalistic organisations, um, need to have a high level of public trust. And so we have to really pay attention to why has trust in media diminished? Um, what is our role in that? How do we, you know, fight that? But what is what is happening out there in the world? This is a, you know, I think globally we're seeing a decline of trust in, um, you know, institutions, the historic, the institutions of media, government, etc. Um, and to really pay attention to how that has happened. Um, and what we can do to combat it. It's definitely not an easy thing to fight when you have um, a whole range of bad actors from individuals looking for power to governments trying to destabilise other governments to all sorts of um, people trying to spread 
conspiracy theories for their own use. Um, we saw that during uh, the COVID period here, how much um, focus there was on the media as apparently spreading lies yeah. or suppressing truths. None of that was remotely true, but it definitely, you can't deny it has had an impact on how, you know, our people, the people's trust. So it's incumbent on us to focus, to not be complacent about the fact that we think we're trustworthy, so therefore people should trust us, um, and to continue to sort of look at how to combat those who would try and diminish trust, but also think about how do we build it and grow it. But with that in mind, when it comes to your stance on open AI and effectively keeping them at arm's length until a fair deal can be done, if I can characterise it like that, uh, I mean, won't it be better for people in the long run if this technology takes off and people are going to use it to, to answer their own questions about news and information, that high-quality news and information, like yours, does get fed into the matrix because then people will get better results from their generative AI searches and that's better for everyone? Of course it's better, but why is it incumbent on us to provide that, to invest in that kind of work here, but have someone else create all the value out of it? And, you know, so of course it's better for people to have high-quality information fed into this, but that information is comes at a cost. It comes at a cost to us and to all the other organisations investing in it, and it should therefore be, um, you know, valued as as any other kind of raw ingredient in a commercial product would be. And would you be taking the stance on generative AI if you hadn't, in the relatively recent past, put up your first paywall after oh, after twenty years yeah, of pretty no, much? No, I think that's completely irrelevant. That's totally irrelevant. I think the the for me. The you know look we're at the very early days of this technology and I feel like we are having to make decisions quite profound decisions about what how to treat our content or how to participate in that without possibly knowing how this is all going to develop over the next you know several years but I think the one clear thing that um, has come out of if you look back in the last sort of twenty years of the growth of the internet the rise of the search engines the rise of social media is that the value for our content. We did not see early enough that the platforms would suck up all the value for that and that that would have, you know, potentially devastating effects on, or has had devastating effects on the business um, models of news media globally. Why, yeah, we don't want to make. They were indexing we all the world's information, that, not selling yeah. ads, right? And yeah. and you know they told us they were doing that, but they didn't tell us they were using all the. They were collecting all the data from our users to create their products. You know, beyond content, there's a sort of control of all the other aspects of digital news ecosystem, the advertising technology um, system. They you know it, they've become the gateway to the internet, but they're still a private. Enterprise themselves, they're not a. It's not a public service. Microsoft, for example, and they're now saying to corporate customers, "You use our products, we'll indemnify you against plagiarism." You know, so if you use something that shouldn't have been there, some violated IP, don't worry about it. Carry yeah. on using, pay your monthly sub. We'll take care of it. That'd be a worry. I felt that was a very disturbing um, development because, in some way, it's an acknowledgement that you know companies looking to use their technology can see that there is an IP issue there, and they're trying to sweep it under the carpet by saying, "Oh, 
don't worry about it. If someone comes after you, we've got your back with our, you know, um, trillions of dollars that we've got uh, stashed away. I mean, yeah, literally. Right. Yeah. And again, so again, you know, I think about this is one of the reasons why um, it's important that that legislation is sort of future-proof because the intent of the legislation is merely to um, set a framework where small companies and we're all small companies against the sizes of you know the, the mega the mega tech platforms uh, have got that kind of support to get them to the table to have a commercial discussion about payment for content and, and services. And that will become even more to the fore in this era of generative AI than it has been as all the models uh, for the tech companies themselves change, as new players arise. And it's extremely important for all of us that we sort of set the um, expectation from the beginning that this um, content is high quality is valuable. We want people to be able to access to it, but we can't give it away for free or we're unable to be a sustainable business ourselves. That was Sinead Boucher, Executive Chair and Publisher of Stuff, which this week announced it's going to join other leading news organisations around the world in blocking open AI from using its content to power the generative artificial intelligence tool, ChatGPT. And the fair digital news bargaining bill she spoke of there is open for public submissions until the 1st of November. As you heard there, Sinead Boucher is determined to protect the intellectual property of stuff from big global players in AI, and it seems they're also prepared to go legal locally on this as well. This week, the independently owned Ashburton Guardian reported that the Ashburton District Council has been told by stuff that a night noodle market earlier this month was a breach of its copyright. The paper reported that the market was a hit with big crowds and queues at the West Street car park. The Night Noodle Market's name and concept is owned by Stuff, and any future events involving nighttime and noodles can't be called a Night Noodle Market. But that seems a shame because after Stuff held the first Night Noodle Markets back in 2016, there haven't been any more of them anywhere since 2019 before COVID struck. Now, it was in early 2020, just as the COVID pandemic kicked off here, that Sinead Boucher paid just one symbolic dollar to take the stuff company off the hands of its disinterested Aussie owners, and in one go, she became the sole boss of New Zealand's biggest publisher of news and most of this country's longest-running newspapers. And next weekend here on Media Watch, we'll hear more from her about how that's going and what the future holds for her business. Last Wednesday on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up with Knights on RNZ National, I chatted to Mark Leishman about Taika Waititi being a bit provocative and also Rawiri Waititi too. If you can point Follow to any, any, any statement from any MP who says they want, want Māori to die earlier. It's in their actions. On Midweek Media Watch, we also talked about limited coverage of two catastrophes just days apart in North Africa and a much-hyped epic weekend of sport in which Kiwi teams fell short and this bit of Rugby World Cup commentary in Paris didn't date at all well. The All Blacks, this French outfit, they're really fatigued. They're out on their feet, Mills. They're out on their feet. And while the world watched that with interest, this was the Kiwi news yarn which really went global this past week. Every now and again, uh, the dog would miss a smell and he'd get this card out and fan the dog. But when he went to sleep, we were just about gassed out. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, sorry, I'm laughing. All that and more if you hold your nose and check out Midweek Media Watch on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it for free wherever you get your podcasts. On Midweek Media Watch last week, Hayden Donnell talked about, among other things, an interesting election-related scoop by RNZ's Guy and Espiner, which lifted the lid a little on how policy is sometimes made. Guy and Espiner, he had a really good story about how closely Waikato Uni worked with National on its plan for a new medical school. Lots of emails going forth. But that's worth seeking out. And the co-editor of Newsroom, Tim Murphy, also thought so on Newsroom's weekly podcast, Raw Politics. Now, my recommendation um, is for the story we talked about, uh, Guy and Espiner's RNZ investigation to the Waikato University Vice-Chancellor, Neil Quigley, and his kind of inopportune communications with National over having a med school there. Documents acquired by Guy and Espiner under the Official Information Act also showed that Vice-Chancellor Quigley had received lobbying advice from former National Minister Stephen Joyce, whose company, Joyce Advisory, was paid nearly a million dollars for consultancy services to the university over three years. And that was something which overlapped with Guy and Espiner's previous investigations into lobbying and who gets paid what from the public purse in New Zealand. And Newsroom's Tim Murphy went on to say this week that the story revealed how closely they'd worked with National Health spokesperson Shane Letty on National's policy for a new medical school at this university. You could say, yes, as the Waikato you know, Vice-Chancellor, I'm going to provide all the information because you need it, Whoever, whichever party or all parties who want it, I'll give it to them. But then to talk about you know, when you get your second term, this will be a gift for you or a present for you highly, highly, I think, unwise, as it's turned out. And Newsroom's senior reporter Mark Dalder also followed up on that with another dimension to all of this. Yeah, so Neil Quigley is also the uh, chair of the board of the Reserve Bank. Given all of the um, controversy that we've seen and, and discussed in some cases earlier this year around board members and political neutrality, some questions there. Now, critics claim that the independence of the university and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand could be compromised, or at least questioned, by Neil Quigley engaging so closely with one political party. But it was all a bit of a beat-up, according to Mike Hosking, on News Talk ZB last week. He and Shane Retty have been in contact about the details, as though that's something outside of perfectly normal. If you were a party setting up a third medical school, would asking a university about it, especially the one that would be the ba- would be the base for it, not be sensible and not remotely scandalous? Well, yes, if you didn't email them back to call it a nice present for 2026, and you weren't also on the board of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand at a time when other senior civil servants had been sacked for expressing political views, in Rob Campbell's case, even views that were outside of his own responsibilities in health. Now, Mike Hosking reckoned the involvement of Stephen Joyce was also not news. His company these days advises them, apparently, as though life post-politics is somehow not allowed anymore. Of course it is, and plenty of past politicians do leverage their experience by consulting for clients. It's the party alignment and the money from the public purse that make it relevant in this case, but not for Mike Hosking. If column inches were used articulating and explaining some of the ideas out there, we'd be better informed. But it seems the policies are too often second cab off the rank to any potential scandal, dirt, scuttlebutt, rumour, innuendo or skullduggery that can be dreamed up and milked for cheap headlines. 
Yet nothing has been reported which would prevent the policy from being enacted, and in fact, other than newsroom, Guy Nespina's story for RNZ was hardly reported elsewhere at all. Even so, it confirmed a media-wide anti-national party bias, according to Mike Hosking. The media tend to report faithfully what Labour says, but question what national promise. Similar traits are being seen in this third medical school the Nats want set up at Waikato University. But strangely, consultants paid public money by the government really bothered Mike Hosking a lot back in February. The media merger, which all agree appears dead in the water, must have run up, I don't know, hundreds, tens of millions, hundreds of millions by now in groups and committees and explorations and consultants. Do you know some consultants working on that are earning $9,000 a day? (laughs) $9,000 a day to consult on something that may never happen. For what, eh? It's insane. Mike Hosking has also been bothered by relatives of Minister Naima Huta getting government contracts back in April. But here is the simple truth. When you're in public office, when you are spending other people's money, you have to be squeaky clean. You have to be beyond reproach. The Australians call it the pub test. Does the fact Mahuta's husband and other family members getting money for contracts pass the pub test? Answer, a simple and easy no. The amount of money so far doesn't appear to be massive, but that's not the point. And Mike Hosking has yet to apply that pub test to the Waikato University Medical School story, so far as we know. Well, a new medical school would of course be a big deal, not just for the university, but also for the whole Waikato region. And last week, another region was highlighting the tertiary education options as a reason to work and live there, in an advertising feature headlined, Nelson Tasman, What's Not to Love, Right Here. Now, this story in last week's Tasman Leader, Nelson Leader and the Marlborough Midweek newspapers said that Nelson Tasman boasts world-class educational institutions, such as the Nelson Marlborough Institute of Technology, which it said was recognised for practical career-focused education, and Te Wananga o Aotearoa in Nelson, delivering academic and vocational courses, incorporating Māori cultural values. And then the University of Nelson, it said, offers a suite of undergraduate and postgraduate programmes and is known for its strong focus on research and innovation, particularly in the fields of environmental science and digital technology. Though one Tasman leader reader this week got in touch with us to say... We have lived in Nelson for over 10 years and my wife worked in tertiary education. She knows nothing of the University of Nelson. Her inquiry to the leader has not yet been replied to. Well, there was a Notre Dame University in Nelson in the Canadian province of British Columbia, but that was later renamed and became a private language school. And in Port Elizabeth in South Africa, there is a University of Nelson... Mandela, but no University of Nelson anywhere in the Nelson or Tasman districts, or in Marlborough for that matter. But the University of Nelson was even cited as a source of the information in that story at the end. Well, this week we got one line back via email from Stuff's Director of Regional and Rural Markets, which said there was an error in that ad feature not picked up by their advertising content writer. And they say a corrected version will run in the same papers this coming week. Good to know, but they didn't tell us how the non-existent University of Nelson was written into the story in the first place, or by whom. But we're guessing it wasn't written in by anyone in the Nelson region or market, where readers of The Leader really do know there's no such university. Well, that's all we have for you this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday on nights with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again at the same time next weekend with Media Watch here on RNZ National.